0: Hi, and welcome to the Rochester Public Power Hour. You're listening to our theme music provided courtesy of Vivid Pop Music. You can check out their music at vividpopmusic.com. I'm Amanda. And I'm Mohini, and we're part
1: of the Rochester for Energy Democracy campaign of Metro Justice.
0: On the Rochester Public Power Hour, we will share updates on our local movement for energy democracy, interview guests organizing movements for energy democracy across the country, and answer questions submitted by you, our audience. We hope that through these conversations, we illustrate the global scale of movements fighting for a more just and sustainable energy system. We also hope to learn from these movements so that our efforts in Rochester can be stronger.
1: Before diving into public power specifically, it's critical that we acknowledge that our community's collective anger at our institutions and our government's failure to value human life is reaching a crescendo through one movement in particular, Black Lives Matter. From Rochester to Portland, cities across the U.S. are erupting in protests against police violence as movements led by Black folks are envisioning a future in which we defund the police and fund our communities. We've already seen the COVID 19 pandemic expose exactly how willing our government is to sacrifice our lives so that a primarily white, male, ultra wealthy, business and property owning class of people could continue profiting off of workers. Now, the militaristic crackdown on BLM protests by police and federal officers, especially in Portland, is exposing how quickly the US can and will turn to fascistic tactics to preserve that same property. And that same profit for that same primarily white owning class. Our government and corporate America keep saying, we don't have the money to keep people safely at home and paid. We don't have the money for Medicare for all. We don't have the money for public ownership of basic human needs like energy. But when the police needs more military-grade weapons to terrorize poor and of color communities, the money suddenly always appears. When there is a war to be fought abroad to extract resources and assert the US's political dominance over black and brown countries, the money appears. When a criminally negligent investor-owned utility, like Pacific Gas and Electric, needs a bailout after declaring bankruptcy for causing deadly wildfires rather than compensate for harm and make repairs, the money appears. Money isn't the problem. It's a problem of values and priorities. And every so often, this anger erupts in a more profound way, in a way more and more dedicated to justice and change, because for centuries, those values and priorities have been shaped by a white supremacist capitalist agenda. The same agenda that's letting police get away with killing Black people in the street and in their homes is the same agenda that is allowing investor owned utilities like RGE to make hundreds of millions of dollars in profit while our households struggle to afford a basic need of energy in our homes. For example, one study in 2015 found that one in every three US households struggled to pay their energy bills. Specifically, 11% of households kept their home at unhealthy or unsafe temperatures, 14% of households received disconnection notices, and 22% of households reduced or forwent basic necessities such as food and medicine, to pay the energy bill. And we know that because of racist histories of redlining and racist histories of discriminating against folks of color from getting good employment means that the vast majority of our impoverished population is of color. And we can't let this kind of energy system keep going. So it means that public power is an essential part of what it means for Black Lives to Matter in the US. That's why in the midst of this surge for the Black Lives Matter movement, Rochester for Energy Democracy has been even more dedicated to growing our movement for a democratic, cooperatively owned public utility in Rochester. And Amanda going to tell us more about
0: how we built that movement in the last few weeks. On our last episode, we talked about the fact that we were about to have a red orientation and a presentation from Jessica Azale from Alliance for a Green Economy to tell us about the energy system and its effect on us. We had that meeting and saw a lot of new faces who are interested in the work and had great discussions and learned more about things like how to read our energy bill and how the, the complicated energy system works. Red has been in existence for almost a year now. So next up, we have a debriefing process that we'll be doing in a few days. So we're taking the time to review what our goals were at the outset and how our efforts to achieve them went. While our main objective of democratizing, decarbonizing, and decommodifying the energy system in Rochester will remain the same, exactly how we work to get there may shift, depending on what's proven successful, and of course, taking into account all that has changed over the past year.
1: Remember in episode two, when Amanda explained the major steps to winning a cooperatively owned public utility in Rochester? One major step was conducting a feasibility study. So a feasibility study works with technological experts to answer critical logistical and financial questions for winning our campaign. These questions include assessing the condition of the current power infrastructure, estimating costs of current and future operations, including the cost of a green energy transition. It includes the cost of taking ownership of the power grid from RGE. It also includes analyzing potential legal and political hurdles, as well as estimating a reasonable time frame for establishing the public utility. Then, a feasibility study takes all that information and recommends realistic options that we can explore to ensure a public utility can deliver clean, affordable energy to city residents and invest in the community. Our members have developed a pitch for potential partners and outlined the scope of the study. Now, they'll be moving on to identifying potential partners and discussing the pitch with them.
0: Mohi, that sounds like a lot of work, and that's only one step in the process.
1: Yes, it is only one step of the process. There is also another really critical part of the process, which is base building. Building a base of informed, excited, and dedicated people is the most important part of this campaign for it to succeed getting a referendum on the ballot to establish the utility, turning people out to vote for it, public action like protests or bill strikes when necessary, and collective democratic ownership of our utility in which the community really participates in decisions, all of that is only possible, it only works, if Rochester residents are informed about our energy system, get involved in the movement, and bring their friends and their neighbors into the movement as well. If we want our utility to benefit us, we actually need to be actively involved. That's why we've been brainstorming new ideas to reach every corner of our Rochester community in a safe but engaging way. We have a very diverse team of volunteers that are rooted in their own different communities, from food insecure communities, to the homeless community, to black communities in different parts of the city, the refugee population, tenants facing eviction due to COVID, the Latinx community, and more. We're dedicated to building a movement of multiracial, multi ethnic solidarity of people exploited and oppressed by our energy system. So stay tuned for future events and organizing opportunities.
0: And the last update I want to give you is about our solar project. And since this podcast is focused on public power, this is one aspect of the campaign that you haven't heard much about yet. We are working to develop a model for a community solar farm in the Plymouth Exchange neighborhood of Rochester with the hope that a successful template would allow other neighborhoods to have community solar farms as well. So we've been working with the Plymouth Exchange Neighborhood Association to develop this community solar farm which would be owned by the community. Because the energy is being generated by the solar farm that the community collectively owns, Costs are reduced, and any revenue not spent on upkeep can be reinvested in ways that benefit the community. But first, that solar farm has to be built, and has to be built right, by unionized workers. And this is a costly endeavor. So while we have a location and a community that's on board with this solar farm, a viable financial model is the challenge for us right now. We recently found out that we were approved as a partner with the National Community Solar Partnership, which means that we have access to resources and a community of groups at various stages of similar types of work. So I wanna take this time to give a shout out to Eric Zeiss and Emily Ghosh for all of the work that they've been doing to move this project forward. We would not be where we are without them. And also look forward to a future episode that will do a deeper dive into community solar farms. So, One question that we've been getting from you all is, what is a rate case? And I'll say that I've been asked that question for a while now. (laughs) So let me try to explain the understanding that I've come to. Utilities are often natural monopolies. They're allowed to exist as monopolies because infrastructure costs are high and it wouldn't make a lot of sense to have competition. Like imagine if you had multiple sets of power lines going to different locations all around you doesn't make a lot of sense. We generally don't allow monopolies because that entity has exclusive control over commodity and could charge unfair prices for it. So utilities are regulated by the Public Service Commission as a form of oversight. A rate case is the act of the utility going to the Public Service Commission and justifying why they need to raise rates to pay for infrastructure, for example. Now, community groups can file as interveners. You may remember that last episode I mentioned that Metro Justice is an intervener in the RGE rate case, and they can do so in order to fight these increases, but also make demands about how the utility operates.
1: Thanks to the involvement of multiple community groups in Rochester in the RG&E rate case, we won some really critical victories when it came to the gas side of the rate case. Amanda elaborated on these in our last episode, but for a quick reminder, some of these victories included retracting $128 million per gas infrastructure, including pipelines, and funding $1.5 million towards renewable heating systems for low-income residents. While that is an immense victory, we're still fighting for just victories within the electric side of the rate case. If you'll recall in our last episode, we talked about how RGE is trying to win a 2.4% rate increase starting in October and a 5.2% rate increase each year after that.
0: So, as I mentioned, rate cases have been confusing for me for a while now. And, you know, there are nitty-gritty aspects that are confusing, but I've recently realized that it's because they, as a concept, are pretty ridiculous. Most businesses have to deal with a free market, which means they may have to have times where they're charging less than they wanted for their product, thereby making less money. Our genie doesn't have to do that. They just decide how much they want to make, figure out what they have to charge to make that, and propose it to the PSC, a body of commissioners appointed by the governor, which tends to rule in their favor. That's crazy. Why aren't the shareholders making millions, shouldering the burden of funding infrastructure? Isn't that part of the risk involved in investing in something that you might not make the money you thought you would, or any at all? These folks don't take that risk. It's guaranteed exorbitant profit. A public utility would go about this all differently. The board would be elected by the people, and so would be held accountable by the people. Through public forums, people would be given a say in what the rate structure would be, and the board would not be serving shareholders expecting to make millions. Profits made by the utility would be reinvested in the community, again, with input from the ratepayers. While many did struggle to pay their energy bill and put food on the table, There are people guaranteed to make millions off of our basic need for heat and lights, and by and large, the Public Service Commission seems okay with that. If we want the needs of the people met, we have to run it ourselves.
1: We are now going to take a short break before interviewing today's guest, Jonathan Cohen from Colorado. We hope you enjoy The Deep by clipping until then. And the no kills gasped when they closed eyes. And they prayed to their guides and they asked why. And then y'all cried too, cause y'all recognized mama in the faces of the ones that y'all were terrorized. They were sisters and brothers, they were the babies born about the water. Not connected
2: to each other, not a knowledge of the one drop, but they had to learn today. Y'all at one shot, let the sun burn today. Let them feel the dark, keep deeper today. Make a two-leg a believer today. Let them know that they done woke a sleeper from a sleep. So deep. That y'all been dancing without any feet. So, so deep. Is the nerve that they struck with a blast, that they broke with a drill, that they burnt with a gas. Y'all remember? So deep. Sunshine. Right on. Y'all remember? So sunshine. On. Y'all, remember. So sunshine. On. y'all remember when y'all had to let them breathe on.
0: Today we have with us Jonathan out in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome. I'd like to just start by having you introduce yourself and tell us about your current involvement in the public power efforts in Boulder.
2: Sure, thanks. Greetings from Boulder, Colorado. My name is Jonathan Cohen. I'm the Chief Sustainability and Resilience Officer for the City of Boulder. Um, and I'm really delighted to be with you today. I think it's going to be a great conversation. I have been with the City of Boulder since 2006. And I think affectionately say that I am the staff person who's been working on Boulder's municipalization or local power effort the longest, uh, really, since 2006. And so it's been an extraordinary learning opportunity and, and quite a wild ride.
0: Great, we're so happy to talk with you. Could you start by telling us a little bit about the Boulder community, especially as it relates to environmental activism um, and resources that are available for environmental issues out there?
2: We have an amazing expertise here in the Boulder community, and that's because we have the University of Colorado Uh, We have 12 federal labs, including the National Center for Atmospheric Research, uh, National Renewable Energy Lab just down the road. Uh, So we have climate scientists right here in our community and a lot of uh, key organizations that do work in this space. Environmental activism and sustainability has long been part of the Boulder fabric. And then really started to embrace this concept of climate activism in the early 2000s when Boulder was one of the early communities to adopt the Kyoto target after the US failed to ratify the International Climate Treaty. Uh, moving forward to 2005 and six, we really started to put a lot of horsepower towards our climate efforts by passing our first climate action plan and then the nation's first voter approved climate action tax or carbon tax to really fund our strategies aimed at reducing our local emissions. It has really become a focal point, not just for local government, but our key institutions. A lot of organizations are really attracted to the Boulder community because of that ethic and that deep concern for environment and sustainability.
0: So given that that atmosphere and that context, a pivotal part of some of the energy work that started happening in Boulder was when uh, the decision was made not to renew the franchise agreement with Excel Energy in 2010. What were the conversations that happened leading up to that decision?
2: So in Colorado and in most states, communities that are served by investor-owned utilities sign franchise agreements. They are typically 20-year public rights-of-way agreements that allow the utility to do work within the incorporated boundaries of that community. That agreement does nothing in terms of setting or establishing rates or your portfolio, meaning the the types of energy that you get or the programs and services that are offered by the utility to that community. Uh, but it is the one chance that the community has to negotiate with their incumbent utility, and that's a really, really important issue. So we began talking with Excel about could we in fact create some side agreements that allowed us as a community to make progress on our local values, our local goals that we've established? Uh, and in the end, what we were offered is, is a traditional or what we refer to as the white bread franchise. And so we had to make a very difficult decision do we in fact take a different course and how do we determine whether there is an alternative pathway and that's what led us to the discussion of municipalization and it's not an unusual thing to be a municipal utility at all. There are 29 in the state of Colorado, though it's important to note that they were set up that way. None have gone through the process of municipalization. Um, Many across the country have gone through this exercise, but it's very difficult. It can be very expensive. And so for us as a community, we need to make sure that number one, it was a plausible pathway to municipalize and stand up a utility that we could then utilize to achieve our local goals and targets. And it was feasible from an economic, technical, and legal standpoint. Because again, that regulatory framework differs state to state. And thankfully, we had the benefit uh, that municipalization is in fact... um, allowed explicitly in the state constitution here in Colorado. So we have the right to do it. The question is, how do we create that pathway because there is no playbook um, at all for communities to do this?
0: Once that decision was made to not renew the franchise agreement, the city itself and the environmental activists shared the goal of reducing emissions um, with municipalization being one of the ways to target that goal. What kind of tactics did each of these entities use to work toward that common objective? So were there things that the city and the activists could collaborate on or did some things fall more to the city and some things more to the activists?
2: You know, there is a role for local government in this discussion and in this process. I mean, it is the city that would sign a franchise with our utility provider moving forward. But in terms of establishing our important values here at the local level, what does that look like? What's important to us as a community? That's not local government's role necessarily. It's done in combination and in partnership with all of the organizations and individuals in our community. So municipalization was really activated by many of our local citizens, our local groups, to really say, look, if we really wanna know the outcome of whether or not municipalization is truly a plausible and feasible pathway, we have to take some risks, we have to do the analysis that's necessary, and along the way, we need to check in with our voters to ensure that we should stay on this pathway. So early in 2010, once we were able to essentially let our franchise agreement lapse, moving forward, we needed to work with our community experts to to determine, first of all, what's the kind of modeling and analysis we need to do to really determine that feasibility, the economic, technical... Um, and legal feasibility that I mentioned earlier. And what are the pathways and options that we have to minimize risk in the process? So working with our activists in our community groups, we determined that there were a number of things that we could do. We assembled many, many working groups to start looking at What is the resource portfolio that we were really driving towards? Um, How do we communicate about the work that's going on on an ongoing basis? What are the residential and commercial implications uh, to what we're doing moving forward? And then because cities can't run campaigns, it was really incumbent on working through our community groups to run the campaigns that were necessary to go to the voters uh, on a regular basis to do these regular check-ins. So our relationship with our community was so vital in this process because, again, we needed to do that pulse check on a regular basis to determine, are we continuing this process in a way that is aligned with our core values as a community? What is the information that people need to be educated and informed before they go to a vote on these issues? Um, How do we hear from people around their concerns? What are they excited about? What would they want from their utility provider if we were able to create this thing? That way we understand that we set it up in the right way in the beginning. What we realized is this was not a local government initiative. This was a community effort and local government had its role in this, um, but only part of it.
0: You mentioned some different working groups that were looking at different aspects of the feasibility. And I'm wondering if you could enumerate what those working groups were and what some of their key findings have been.
2: Of course. So rather than assuming we had all the answers, what we really wanted to do is embrace the knowledge and intellect that we have in our community and create that space for them to really apply what we are trying to accomplish at the global scale at the local level, meaning how would we create a city run electric utility that truly benefits the Boulder community. What are the goals of local power? How do they relate to the city's climate targets? And why is it part of our overall city climate work? So those working groups really were fundamentally an important place to help us think through what the analysis was that we needed to accomplish. So rate experts that have good experience in understanding how utilities create rate structures that benefit their customers and not just think about them as rate payers. What are the programs and services that we would want to offer if we were able to stand up this utility? How would they differ from what we have today? We had a group of really incredibly smart people work with us to think about what the portfolio is we would want to solicit. And once we turned from a retail to a wholesale, a customer what is the modeling that we want to use we, we actually had a group of folks help us put together our model that helped us think about financial feasibility uh, we had a group that was really based on communications helping us understand what are the right ways to communicate uh, about this work Um, So those are just some of the examples. And then we posted on our website, we actually have all of the meeting notes from those 2010 to 2012 working groups. And it was really an extraordinary process, I have to say. We involved several hundred people in a variety of different working groups, continue to have town hall discussions about the findings of those working groups. And some of those findings were actually quite extraordinary.
0: And were there any findings that surprised you in a good way or bad way?
2: Yeah, I think that there were a number of, uh, I wouldn't call them surprises. I think that they were maybe some ah aha's and then some affirmation of some of our earlier thinking. A couple of those relate to cost and renewables. One of the things that we were able to do is uh, release a request for indicative pricing and. In shorthand, all that means is, because we're not a utility today, we wanted to signal to the wholesale market, hey, if we were a utility, what kind of pricing could you give us on this particular portfolio? What are the products that you might offer to us? So it was really fascinating. To see that in the responses that we got from the power providers, that there was substantial headroom in terms of savings. So originally, it was you know I think we're all trained to say renewables are more expensive; it's a premium product. And what we realized is, over the the decade that we've been at this, the price for renewables has plummeted, and, and we all know that we are all experiencing that. And so as a local utility who would not be owning any of that generation, we would just be signing some short and medium and long-term contracts for that power, we found that there was an amazing amount of savings that can be had by buying certain types of power from certain providers. So really understanding how we would pay for Not only starting up a utility, but operating the utility. I think that was a really fundamental learning from the process. I also think that there was some really interesting, maybe on the other side of not so welcome experience, just the legal process to get from where we are today to owning and operating our local utility. And this was the reality of facing a process that had never been done in the state of Colorado or really since uh, 18. 1803, I think is the date. I may have that off. But understanding the process in terms of, do we start with condemnation? Do you go to the district court first? What role does our public utility commission play in um, identifying the assets that we want to acquire? And how do we separate that system from Excel Energy without harming or impacting remaining customers on the Excel side? All the while, knowing that our incumbent utility is going to fight us and has continued to fight us this whole way. It was not unanticipated. We expected that they would be doing that, but the legal process has been incredibly challenging because we, in some sense, have kind of had to bushwhack our way through the process.
1: You know, Jonathan, as you've described local power's goals and journey in assessing the feasibility of a municipal utility, one thing that I find very inspiring is that, you know, when you encountered really tough big questions, you didn't give up and diligently engaged in the very rigorous process of like getting constant community input, doing research and trying to figure it out, which, you know, we know is so important because visionary necessary change is, is never easy. As people working on a public power campaign, we know that these questions of technical and financial feasibility aren't the only challenges we're going to face. Opposition is another really big one, and you've touched on it already by mentioning the litigation process. We know that investor-owned utilities don't give up without a fight. So could you elaborate a bit more on that litigation process, you know what it is, how it's going, and the challenges that you faced?
2: Yeah, of course, yeah it's a it's a really good question because it's you know it's really central to the process and You know, at the beginning of your question, I think it's important to note that it it wasn't in in today, our entire community is not behind this effort. I think there, you know, some of the votes have been pretty close. And the reason for that is, you know, municipalization and having the city take on the role of being the electric provider introduces risk to certain customers. There are a number, I'll just say, a a number of key institutions, large industrial customers that, while they may not be completely satisfied with Excel Energy as their utility provider, you know, something new really introduces risk. And I have to just honor and acknowledge that. And so our job has been to really point out the benefits associated with a city-run electric utility. The other reason that we've heard is that the city should be in the business of of running a utility, though I will just point out that the city runs three utilities right now, our water, wastewater, and stormwater utilities with combined assets that far exceed the assets of an electric distribution system. So the litigation process has been very, very challenging, really from the perspective of, again, it's not been done in the state of Colorado. And You know, as I mentioned right at the top of our our discussion, Excel is fundamentally the only investor. There is a a second smaller investor in utility that serves one community in the southeast portion of Colorado. But generally, we have a regulatory agency um, at the state level that regulates one utility. And that creates a very interesting dynamic in terms of communities wanting to go further faster, communities wanting to do something different, communities that have established aggressive goals like Boulder to get to 100% renewable electricity or 100% renewable energy, aggressive emission reduction goals. So it has created this tension at the state level to say, how can Excel move further faster? How can uh, communities like Boulder perhaps go it on their own, and then what is the legal process to go from here to there? And you know, I just have to also appreciate that our PUC commissioners, this this was very new to them as well, and so they were learning as we went along. But you know, just to make this fundamental point, that Colorado law is clear; we have the ability to do what we want to do, though the nuance has been. The role that the PUC plays, the role that the court plays.
1: Absolutely, Jonathan. Thank you for thank you for elaborating on that more. Where does the process stand?
2: <laughs> so here I'll go from my very excited voice to my very sobering voice. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting because we have been at this in artist for about a decade. Uh, but I I also want to recognize Um, I'll get back to your question here directly in a second. I do wanna recognize that Excel has made a lot of progress over the past handful of years. I think when Colorado became the first state to pass uh, a renewable portfolio standard, Excel was a much different utility. They opposed it openly. Um, they have continued to kind of work from the traditional regulated utility model, maximizing profit, uh, feeding their existing fossil fleet. And as a company, they have really shifted and pivoted in a big way. And they have attributed a lot of that shift to Boulder and our efforts to municipalize and really showcasing and highlighting the importance of energy in local jurisdictions' ability to achieve their goals. We've been working with them throughout this process. We've gone through four rounds of negotiation settlements. We work directly at the state legislature to move climate policy and energy policy and at our regulators at the PUC to, to really move this process forward. So I just, I want to make sure to give them that credit, though it, it still does not get us where we wanna go as a community. So where we are right now, directly to your question, last year was a fairly important milestone for us in this process. We were able to get the authority from the Public Utilities Commission to move forward with condemnation. That was a a big, big milestone. Um, As I mentioned earlier, we never anticipated that the, the PUC would have a significant role. Clearly they did. It took us about four years working through the PUC to get to where we are. So we are in the space now of, of beginning our condemnation action. And again, I just, just for uh, listeners, the city and cities can use their eminent domain power, their condemnation power to condemn the assets that we want to own. And The district court determines the value of those assets. They don't determine whether we can or can't. They just say, what is your appraisal, Boulder? What is your appraisal, Excel? Make your arguments, and I will determine how much you need to pay for those assets. That's the condemnation process. Once they rule, we essentially write the check. I'm making this very very simplistic, but we write the check, and then we own the system. We have told our voters that they will have the final say in this. And that is our plan right now. We'll finalize condemnation. Once we know that number, um, the acquisition cost, again, that's what condemnation will tell us. We will put that into our financial models and tell our community, here is the revenue requirement. Um, Here's how much it's going to cost to create the utility effectively. And now you as the community, you get to decide, should we do this or should we not do this? But part of this has been really pushing the state legislature to adopt a similar approach with regard to really driving towards energy as really as a service rather than a product to be sold. Because again, I think that is what's been so important. The traditional business model is we sell kilowatt hours. You as a customer, we want to we want to maximize the sale of our product. How we fundamentally shift that model and make sure that energy is a service that can be used to you know, create equity in our communities to really understand how it links with our core values at the local level. How can it be that number one, uh, the utility really bears no risk in in this entire equation? Um, Ratepayers pay for any new generation brought online. Ratepayers pay for the fuel to feed those plants whether it's you know a gas plant or a coal plant ratepayers pay for the output we pay an additional rate of of uh, return on equity or rate of return so that profit margin in terms of risk there is a fundamental issue that needs to be addressed in our u- utility model in this country in terms of who bears risks moving forward and this is the fundamental issue today as we think about how utilities are shifting or can shift to a different type of portfolio in a pace that is commensurate with where we need to go with regard to climate change. And I think that's what's so amazing about this experience and this process of municipalization. Is it exposed more and more how important control, local control really is, and decision making and choice. These are things that, you know, 10 years ago, we thought were just kind of wild ideas. And now we're seeing it really, I think, blossom across the country. And many, many communities are realizing how important it is
1: absolutely and that's a really big reason why you know our campaign in Rochester is really advocating for local control because when decisions are made you know by our community we prioritize the health and the interests of our community whereas you know with investor owned utilities you so often come up against you know shareholders desire to first and foremost protect their profit and that can create a lot of significant roadblocks to you know renewable energy to fair rates um, and things like that you've started talking about it a bit already um, but I'd like to dive in a bit deeper and that is you've been working on this for more than a decade and even though you're not past the finish line of the municipalization goal there have been some amazing and impactful successes along the way so in addition to the ones you've already mentioned what do you see as some of the biggest successes of local power so far?
2: Yeah, that's a terrific question. I would, I would start at the very macro view, and it, it really comes down to this issue of literacy. I think before we embarked on this, this road of municipalization, I think referring to my comments just a minute ago, I think majority of people were kind of in the mind of, yeah, electricity is important, but you get what you get, right? I mean, we're a homogenized system. Excel You know, they crank out kilowatt hours, we all buy them, we really have little choice, and maybe it really doesn't matter. Through this process, we've been able to really explore with our community how we might be able to utilize the grid in a different way to support individuals, to support businesses, to support technology transfer and innovation. And it was in that experience that helped emerge our community energy goals. And so some of the, I think some of the wins have been, number one, helping our community understand the importance of electricity and the grid in supporting community values. And there was a really interesting turning point in 2013, when the, the Boulder region experienced a pretty catastrophic flood. So we, in in the region, in the Front Range of Colorado, um, in the Boulder region, between 2010 and 2013, we experienced four of our most catastrophic wildfires in history, followed by this catastrophic flood event in 2013 that was largely attributed to changing climate. So we didn't say that, again, climate change didn't cause the storm event, but it really exasperated um, the situation in terms of seeing how that rain event that we had never experienced before really had dramatic impacts, billions of dollars in damage. Um, and, And why that's important to flag is resilience then became a very, very important topic for our community. We started thinking about Resilience. What does a resilient energy system look like? Different communities have different values. We know that. But the one of the fundamental underpinnings is that we all need energy. We're all going to continue to need energy. And it is become it is going to continue to become a more vital part of our local efforts and our local and our ability to achieve our local goals. So I think it's it was really been, I think, some of the great successes in helping our community understand the importance. And then we've been able to kind of create a momentum here in the state of Colorado where we're so fortunate last legislative session where we had a Senate majority leader, a speaker, and a governor all from Boulder. And we were able to pass a package of historic legislation, 12 climate and energy bills that are some of the most progressive in the country. And it has really changed the dynamic here in the state where we now have established emission reduction goals for all of the utilities. Uh, We have renewable goals for all of the utilities. We have really, really progressive requirements as it relates to local objectives. And so all of that, I think, was enabled and buoyed by the work done here locally in Boulder to really raise up and explore, analyze, and communicate about the importance of this effort.
1: And along those same lines of like the power of local say, is that you've mentioned that, you know, the threat of municipalization allowed people in Boulder to have more negotiation power with Excel to push them to be a better company. And that resulted in some really significant improvements for the community as well. Another aspect of the work in Boulder and connecting to statewide efforts has been the question of just transition, which I know has been a very important question for us in Rochester because we want to make sure that a green energy future is also a prosperous future for energy workers. I know you've mentioned that this isn't a question that's perhaps best addressed city by city and requires statewide policy, which led to something called the Colorado Communities for Climate Action. Can you elaborate a bit more on what that is and in some of its activities?
2: Yeah, of course, I'll take those questions separately. So one of the the learnings over the, I would say past decade through this municipalization effort has been the importance of community voices at the state level. We did work uh, with a number of sponsors last year to move forward, a just transition bill that really looks at support for coal-related jobs. An office and advisory committee has been formed at the state level. A just transition plan and workforce transition plan has been developed. And so this office is in the division of employment and training in the department of labor and employment and so this committee i think has really been instrumental in understanding the implications and really helping to create benefits to coal transition workers enable them to support themselves and their families and to access and complete education and training towards being hired for high quality jobs and so it's it's been a really valuable and important process. And it creates a really nice place for us to move into the next kind of area of work in terms of just transition and transition as we think about oil and gas in the state of Colorado. So right now we're thinking about the impact on coal-based communities and we're now starting to think about how do you apply that to other forms of fossil fuel-based generation.
1: It's really great to hear that Colorado is concretely valuing a, a just transition in their state. That's not actually something that we're seeing on a statewide level in New York State right now. When Last year, New York State passed the CLCPA, the Climate Leadership Community and Protection Act. One thing that Governor Cuomo did before he passed it was gut all the worker protections in a lot of the just transition worker provisions, which you know a lot of community groups like ours were really disappointed about. So we're definitely trying to get you know New York State on a similar path towards valuing just transition, uh, just like Colorado is. Before we let you go for today, we're so glad that you took the time to share the story and the journey of Boulder with us. Are there any final words of wisdom that you would like to impart for groups like ours?
2: Boy, we'll be here another hour. Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, I wanted to thank you very much for, for letting me talk about this. I think it's it's really been an extraordinary process and a, and a learning opportunity for not just me individually, but our community. You know, I guess I, I would say this, one of the most powerful and insidious forces we face is resignation. And it's this numb acceptance that we simply cannot change things. So we 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 know what we know and we simply don't feel like we can do anything about it. And, and I say that because it has been so powerful for me to witness how our community has number one, really taxed itself. For these important issues and continue to stay the course. You mentioned this earlier that there have been many times that that our internal team, our elected officials, and our community has wanted to give up. And who knows what's going to happen? Are we gonna create a local utility? I, I don't know. I, I I honestly can't say. But what I will say is that it has been worth it. Every dollar we have spent all of the time and resources devoted to this project have been worth it. And the reason for that is, as I referenced earlier, the whole utility model in the state has shifted. And that is in large part to the work that we have done here. And I am very proud of that. As I think about How far we have come. I am very proud of our community for staying the course. I'm very proud of the work that we have done uh, to move the whole narrative forward. And regardless of what you all decide to do, I think it is so important that you are having the conversation because it signals to your utility, it signals to your regulators that it matters, your opinion matters and what you do as a community is important in the overall scheme in terms of the energy system. So I applaud you in your efforts, I applaud you in working with your community and again, it's been a pleasure talking today and anything we can do to, to help you from Colorado, we're here
0: that's our show for today we'd love to hear from you between now and our next episode you can send comments and questions to us on our twitter at metrojustice using the hashtag rock public power hour or email us at rock public power hour at we look forward to answering your questions on our next episode cheers